This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Gordon Mackenzie. Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Chapter 14 Former Inhabitants and Winter Visitors. I weathered some merry snowstorms and spent some cheerful winter evenings by my fireside, while the snow whirled wildly without, and even the hooting of the owl was hushed. For many weeks I met no one in my walks but those who came occasionally to cut wood and sled it to the village. The elements, however, abetted me in making a path through the deepest snow in the woods for when I had once gone through, the wind blew the oak leaves into my tracks, where they lodged, and by absorbing the rays of the sun melted the snow, and so not only made a bed for my feet, but in the night their dark line was my guide. For human society I was obliged to conjure up the former occupants of these woods. Within the memory of many of my townsmen, the road near which my house stands resounded with the laugh and gossip of inhabitants, and the woods which border it were notched and dotted here and there with their little gardens and dwellings, though it was then much more shut in by the forest than now. In some places within my own remembrance the pines would scrape both sides of a chaise at once and women and children who were compelled to go this way to Lincoln alone and on foot did it with fear, and often ran a good deal of the distance. Though mainly but a humble route to neighboring villages, or for the woodsman's team, it once amused the traveler more than now by its variety, and lingered longer in his memory. Where now firm open fields stretch from the village to the woods, it then ran through a maple swamp on a foundation of logs, the remnants of which doubtless still underlie the present dusty highway, from the Stratton, now the Almshouse Farm, to Brister's Hill. East of my bean-field, across the road, lived Cato Ingraham, slave of Duncan Ingraham, Esquire, gentleman of Concord Village, who built his slave a house, and gave him permission to live in Walden Woods. Cato, uh, not Eutysensis, but Concordiensis. Some say that he was a Guinea Negro. There are a few who remember his little patch among the walnuts, which he let grow up till he should be old and need them but a younger and whiter speculator got them at last. He too, however, occupies an equally narrow house at present. Cato's half-obliterated cellar-hole still remains, though known to few, being concealed from the traveller by a fringe of pines. It is now filled with the smooth sumac, rus glabra, and one of the earliest species of goldenrod, Solidago stricta, grows there luxuriantly. Here, by the very corner of my field still nearer to town, Zilpha, a colored woman, 
had her little house, where she spun linen for the townsfolk, making the Walden woods ring with her shrill singing, for she had a loud and notable voice. At length, in the War of 1812, her dwelling was set on fire by English soldiers, prisoners on parole, when she was away, and her cat and dog and hens were all burned up together. She led a hard life, and somewhat inhumane. One old frequenter of these woods remembers that, as he passed her house one noon, he heard her muttering to herself over her gurgling pot, Ye are all bones, bones. I have seen bricks amid the oak copse there. Down the road on the right hand, on Brister's Hill, lived Brister Freeman, a handy negro, slave of Squire Cummings once. There where grow still the apple trees which Brister planted and tended, large old trees now, but their fruit still wild and ciderish to my taste. Not long since I read his epitaph in the old Lincoln burying ground, a little on one side, near the unmarked graves of some British grenadiers who fell in the retreat from Concord, where he is styled Scipio Brister. Scipio Africanus, he had some title to be called, a man of color, as if he were discolored. It also told me, with staring emphasis, when he died, which was but an indirect way of informing me that he ever lived. With him dwelt Fenda, his hospitable wife, who told fortunes, yet pleasantly, large, round, and black, blacker than any of the children of night. Such a dusky orb as never rose on Concord before or since. Farther down the hill on the left, on the old road in the woods, are marks of some homestead of the Stratton family, whose orchard once covered all the slope of Brister's Hill, but was long since killed out by pitch-pines, excepting a few stumps, whose old roots furnish still the wild stalks of many a thrifty village tree. Nearer yet to town you come to Breed's location, on the other side of the way, just on the edge of the wood, ground famous for the pranks of a demon not distinctly named in old mythology, who has acted a prominent and astounding part in our New England life, and deserves as much as any mythological character to have his biography written one day, who first comes in the guise of a friend or hired man, and then robs and murders the whole family. New England rum. But history must not yet tell the tragedies enacted here. Let time intervene in some measure to assuage and lend an azure tint to them. Here the most indistinct and dubious tradition says that once a tavern stood, the well the same, which tempered the traveller's beverage and refreshed his steed. Here then men saluted one another, and heard and told the news, and went their ways again. 
Breed's hut was standing only a dozen years ago, though it had long been unoccupied. It was about the size of mine. It was set on fire by mischievous boys one election night, if I do not mistake. I lived on the edge of the village then, and had just lost myself over Davenant's Gondebert, that winter that I labored with a lethargy, which, by the way, I never knew whether to regard as a family complaint, having an uncle who goes to sleep shaving himself, and is obliged to sprout potatoes in a cellar Sundays in order to keep awake and keep the Sabbath or as the consequence of my attempt to read Chalmers' collection of English poetry without skipping. It fairly overcame my nervi. I had just sunk my head on this, when the bells rung fire, and in hot haste the engines rolled that way, led by a straggling troop of men and boys, and I among the foremost, for I had leaped the brook. We thought it was far south over the woods, we who had run to fires before. Barn, shop, or dwelling-house were all together. "'It's Baker's Barn!' cried one. "'It is the Codman place!' affirmed another. And then fresh sparks went up above the wood, as if the roof fell in, and we all shouted, "'Concord to the rescue!' Wagons shot past with furious speed and crushing loads, bearing, perchance, among the rest, the agent of the insurance company, who was bound to go, however far, and ever and anon the engine bell tinkled behind, more slow and sure and rearmost of all, as it was afterward whispered, came they who set the fire and gave the alarm. Thus we kept on like true idealists, rejecting the evidence of our senses, until at a turn in the road we heard the crackling, and actually felt the heat of the fire from over the wall, and realized, alas, that we were there. The very nearness of the fire but cooled our ardor. At first we thought to throw a frog-pond on to it, but concluded to let it burn, and was so far gone and so worthless. So we stood round our engine, jostled one another expressed our sentiments through speaking trumpets, or in lower tone referred to the great conflagrations which the world has witnessed, including Bascom's shop, and between ourselves we thought that, were we there in season with our tub, and a full frog-pond by, we could turn that threatened last and universal one into another flood. We finally retreated without doing any mischief, returned to sleep and Gondibert, but as for Gondibert, I would accept that passage in the preface about wit being the soul's powder. But most of mankind are strangers to wit, as Indians are to powder. It chanced that I walked that way across the fields the following night, about the same hour, and hearing a low moaning at this spot, I drew near in the dark and discovered the only survivor of the family that I know, the heir of both its virtues and its vices, who alone was interested in this burning. Lying on his stomach, and looking over the cellar wall at the still smouldering cinders beneath, muttering to himself as is his wont, 
He had been working far off in the river meadows all day, and had improved the first moments that he could call his own to visit the home of his fathers and his youth. He gazed into the cellar from all sides and points of view by turns, always lying down to it, as if there was some treasure which he remembered concealed between the stones, where there was absolutely nothing but a heap of bricks and ashes. The house being gone, he looked at what there was left. He was soothed by the sympathy which my mere presence implied, and showed me, as well as the darkness permitted, where the well was covered up, which, thank heaven, could never be burned. And he groped long about the wall to find the well sweep which his father had cut and mounted, feeling for the iron hook or staple by which a burden had been fastened to the heavy end, all that he could now cling to, to convince me that it was no common rider. I felt it, and still remark it almost daily in my walks, for by it hangs the history of a family. Once more on the left, where are seen the well and lilac bushes by the wall, in the now open field, lived Nutting and Le Gros, but to return toward Lincoln. Farther in the woods than any of these, where the road approaches nearest to the pond, Wyman the potter squatted, and furnished his townsmen with earthenware, and left descendants to succeed him. Neither were they rich in worldly goods, holding the land by sufferance while they lived, and there often the sheriff came in vain to collect the taxes, and attached a chip for form's sake, as I have read in his accounts, there being nothing else that he could lay his hands on. One day in midsummer, when I was hoeing, a man who was carrying a load of pottery to market stopped his horse against my field and inquired concerning Wyman the Younger. He had long ago bought a potter's wheel of him and wished to know what had become of him. I had read of the potter's clay and wheel in scripture, but it had never occurred to me that the pots we use were not such as had come down unbroken from those days or grown on trees like gourds somewhere, and I was pleased to hear that so fictile an art was ever practiced in my neighborhood. The last inhabitant of these woods before me was an Irishman, Hugh Coyle, if I have spelt his name with Coyle enough, who occupied Wyman's tenement. Colonel Coyle, he was called. Rumor said that he had been a soldier at Waterloo. If he had lived, I should have made him fight his battles over again. His trade here was that of a ditcher. Napoleon went to St. Helena. Coyle came to Walden Woods. All I know of him is tragic. He was a man of manners like one who had seen the world, and was capable of more civil speech than you could well attend to. He wore a great coat in midsummer, being affected with the trembling delirium, and his face was the color of carmine. He died in the road, at the foot of Brister's Hill, shortly after I came to the woods, so that I have not remembered him as a neighbor. 
before his house was pulled down, when his comrades avoided it as an unlucky castle, I visited it. There lay his old clothes, curled up by use, as if they were himself, upon his raised plank bed. His pipe lay broken on the hearth, instead of a bowl broken at the fountain. The last could never have been the symbol of his death, for he confessed to me that, though he had heard of Brister's Spring, he had never seen it. And soiled cards, kings of diamonds, spades, and hearts, were scattered over the floor. One black chicken, which the administrator could not catch, black as night and as silent, not even croaking, awaited Reynard, still went to roost in the next apartment. In the rear there was the dim outline of a garden, which had been planted but had never received its first hoeing, owing to those terrible shaking fits, though it was now harvest time. It was overrun with Roman wormwood and beggar ticks, which last stuck to my clothes for all fruit. The skin of a woodchuck was freshly stretched upon the back of the house, a trophy of his last Waterloo. But no warm cap or mittens would he want more. Now only a dent in the earth marks the site of these dwellings, with buried cellar stones and strawberries, raspberries, thimbleberries, hazel bushes, and sumacs growing in the sunny sward there. Some pitch-pine or gnarled oak occupies what was the chimney-nook, and a sweet-scented black birch, perhaps, waves where the door-stone was. Sometimes the well-dent is visible, where once a spring oozed, now dry and tearless grass. Or it was covered deep, not to be discovered till some late day with a flat stone under the sod, when the last of the race departed. What a sorrowful act must that be, the covering up of wells, coincident with the opening of wells of tears. These cellar dents, like deserted fox burrows, old holes, are all that is left where once were the stir and bustle of human life, and fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute, in some form and dialect or other, were by turns discussed. But all I can learn of their conclusions amount to just this, that Cato and Brister pulled wool, which is about as edifying as the history of more famous schools of philosophy, still grows the vivacious lilac. A generation after the door and lintel and the sill are gone, unfolding its sweet-scented flowers each spring to be plucked by the musing traveller, planted and tended once by children's hands in front-yard plots, now standing by wall-sides in retired pastures, and giving place to new rising forests. 
the last of that stirp, sole survivor of that family. Little did the dusky children think that the puny slip with its two eyes only, which they stuck in the ground in the shadow of the house and daily watered, would root itself so, and outlive them, and house itself in the rear that shaded it, and grown man's garden and orchard, and tell their story faintly to the lone wanderer a half-century after they had grown up and died, blossoming as fair and smelling as sweet as in that first spring. I mark its still tender, civil, cheerful lilac colors. But this small village, germ of something more, why did it fail while Concord keeps its ground? Were there no natural advantages, no water privileges, forsooth? Why, the deep Walden Pond and cool Brister Spring, privileged to drink long and healthy draughts at these, all unimproved by these men but to dilute their glass. They were universally a thirsty race. Might not the basket, stable-broom, mat-making, corn-parching, linen-spinning, and pottery business have thrived here, making the wilderness to blossom like the rose, and a numerous posterity have inherited the land of their fathers? The sterile soil would at least have been proof against a low-land degeneracy. Alas, how little does the memory of these human inhabitants enhance the beauty of the landscape. Again, perhaps, nature will try, with me for a first settler, and my house raised last spring to be the oldest in the hamlet. I am not aware that any man has ever built on the spot which I occupy. Deliver me from a city built on the site of a more ancient city, whose materials are ruins, whose gardens, cemeteries. The soil is blanched and accursed there, and before that becomes necessary the earth itself will be destroyed. With some reminiscences I repeopled the woods and lulled myself to sleep. At this season I seldom had a visitor. When the snow lay deepest, no wanderer ventured near my house for a week or fortnight at a time. But there I lived, as snug as a meadow mouse, or as cattle and poultry which are said to have survived for a long time buried in drifts, even without food, or like that early settler's family in the town of Sutton, in this state, whose cottage was completely covered by the great snow of 1717, when he was absent, and an Indian found it only by the hole which the chimney's breath made in the drift, and so relieved the family. 
But no friendly Indian concerned himself about me, nor needed he, for the master of the house was at home. The great snow! How cheerful it is to hear of! When the farmers could not get to the woods and swamps with their teams, and were obliged to cut down the shade-trees before their houses, and when the crust was harder, cut off the trees in the swamps, ten feet from the ground, as it appeared the next spring. In the deepest snows, the path which I used from the highway to my house, about half a mile long, might have been represented by a meandering dotted line, with wide intervals between the dots. For a week of even weather I took exactly the same number of steps, and of the same length, coming and going, stepping deliberately and with the precision of a pair of dividers in my own deep tracks. To such routine the winter reduces us, yet often they were filled with heaven's own blue. But no weather interfered fatally with my walks, or rather my going abroad, for I frequently tramped eight or ten miles through the deepest snow to keep an appointment with a beech-tree, or a yellow birch, or an old acquaintance among the pines. When the ice and snow causing their limbs to droop, and so sharpening their tops, had changed the pines into fir-trees. Wading to the tops of the highest hills, when the snow was nearly two feet deep on a level, and shaking down another snowstorm on my head at every step, or sometimes creeping and floundering thither on my hands and knees, when the hunters had gone into winter quarters. One afternoon I amused myself by watching a barred owl, Strix nebulosa, sitting on one of the lower dead limbs of a white pine, close to the trunk, in broad daylight, I standing within a rod of him. He could hear me when I moved, and crunched the snow with my feet, but could not plainly see me. When I made most noise he would stretch out his neck and erect his neck feathers, and open his eyes wide. But their lids soon fell again, and he began to nod. I too felt a slumberous influence after watching him half an hour, as he sat thus with his eyes, half open, like a cat, winged brother of the cat. There was only a narrow slit left between their lids, by which be preserved a peninsular relation to me. Thus with half-shut eyes, looking out from the land of dreams, and endeavouring to realise me, vague object or moat that interrupts his visions. At length, on some louder noise or my nearer approach, he would grow uneasy and sluggishly turn about on his perch as if impatient at having his dreams disturbed. And when he launched himself off and flapped through the pines, spreading his wings to unexpected breadth, I could not hear 
the slightest sound from them. Thus, guided amid the pine boughs, rather by a delicate sense of their neighborhood than by sight, feeling his twilight way, as it were, with his sensitive pinions, he found a new perch where he might in peace await the dawning of his day. As I walked over the long causeway made for the railroad through the meadows, I encountered many a blustering and nipping wind, for nowhere has it freer play, and when the frost had smitten me on one cheek, heathen as I was, I turned it to the other also. Nor was it much better by the carriage road from Brister's Hill, for I came to town still like a friendly Indian when the contents of the broad open fields were all piled up between the walls of the Walden Road, and half an hour sufficed to obliterate the tracks of the last traveller. And when I returned new drifts would have formed, through which I floundered, where the busy northwest wind had been depositing the powdery snow round a sharp angle in the road, and not a rabbit's track nor even the fine print, the small type, of a meadow-mouse was to be seen. Yet I rarely failed to find, even in midwinter, some warm and springly swamp, where the grass and the skunk cabbage still put forth their perennial verdure, and some hardier bird occasionally awaited the return of spring. Sometimes, notwithstanding the snow, when I returned from my walk at evening, I crossed the deep tracks of a wood-chopper leading from my door, and found his pile of whittlings on the hearth, and my house filled with the odor of his pipe. Or on a Sunday afternoon, if I chanced to be at home, I heard the crunching of the snow made by the step of a long-headed farmer whom from far through the woods sought my house to have a social crack. One of the few of his vocation who are men of their farms, who donned a frock instead of a professor's gown, and is as ready to extract the moral out of church or state as to haul a load of manure from his barnyard. We talked of rude and simple times, when men sat about large fires in cold, bracing weather with clear heads, and when other dessert failed, we tried our teeth on many a nut which wise squirrels have long since abandoned, for those which have the thickest shells are commonly empty. The one who came from farthest to my lodge, through deepest snows and most dismal tempests, was a poet, a farmer, a hunter, a soldier, a reporter, even a philosopher may be daunted, but nothing can deter a poet, for he is actuated by pure love. Who can predict his comings and goings? His business calls him out at all hours, even when doctors sleep. We made that small house ring with boisterous mirth, and resound with the murmur of much sober talk, 
making amends then to Walden Vale for the long silences. Broadway was still and deserted in comparison. At suitable intervals there were regular salutes of laughter, which might have been referred indifferently to the last uttered or the forthcoming jest. We made many a brand-new theory of life over a thin dish of gruel, which combined the advantages of conviviality with the clear-headedness which philosophy requires. I should not forget that during my last winter at the pond there was another welcome visitor, who at one time came through the village, through snow and rain and darkness, till he saw my lamp through the trees, and shared with me some long winter evenings. One of the last of the philosophers. Connecticut gave him to the world. He peddled first her wares, afterwards, as he declares, his brains. These he peddles still, prompting God and disgracing man, bearing for fruit his brain only, like the nut its kernel. I think that he must be the man of the most faith of any alive. His words and attitude always suppose a better state of things than other men are acquainted with, and he will be the last man to be disappointed as the ages revolve. He has no venture in the present, but though comparatively disregarded now, when his day comes, laws unsuspected by most will take effect, and masters of families and rulers will come to him for advice. How blind that cannot see serenity! A true friend of man, almost the only friend of human progress, an old mortality, say rather an immortality, with unwearied patience and faith making plain the image engraven in men's bodies, the god of whom they are but defaced and leaning monuments. With his hospitable intellect he embraces children, beggars, insane, and scholars, and entertains the thought of all, adding to it commonly some breadth and elegance. I think that he should keep a caravansary on the world's highway, where philosophers of all nations might put up, and on his sign should be printed, Entertainment for man, but not for his beast. Enter ye that have leisure and a quiet mind, who earnestly seek the right road. He is perhaps the sanest man, and has the fewest crotchets of any I chance to know, the same yesterday and tomorrow. Of yore we had sauntered and talked, and effectually put the world behind us, for he was pledged to no institution in it, free-born, ingenus. Whichever way we turned, it seemed that the heavens and the earth had met together, since he enhanced the beauty of the landscape. A blue-robed man, 
whose fittest roof is the overarching sky which reflects his serenity. I do not see how he can ever die. Nature cannot spare him. Having each some shingles of thought well dried, we sat and whittled them, trying our knives and admiring the clear yellowish grain of the pumpkin pine. We waited so gently and reverently, or we pulled together so smoothly that the fishes of thought were not scared from the stream, nor feared any angler on the bank, but came and went grandly, like the clouds which float through the western sky and the mother-o'-pearl flocks which sometimes form and dissolve there. There we worked, revising mythology, rounding a fable here and there, and building castles in the air, for which earth offered no worthy foundation. Great looker, great expector, to converse with whom was a New England night's entertainment. Ah, such discourse we had, hermit and philosopher, and the old settler I have spoken of, we three, it expanded and racked my little house. I should not dare to say how many pounds weight there was above the atmospheric pressure on every circular inch. It opened its seams so that they had to be caulked with much dullness thereafter to stop the consequent leak. But I had enough of that kind of oakum already picked. There was one other with whom I had solid seasons, long to be remembered, at his house in the village, and who looked in upon me from time to time, but I had no more for society there. There, too, as everywhere, I sometimes expected the visitor who never comes. The Vishnu Purana says, The householder is to remain at eventide in his courtyard as long as it takes to milk a cow, or longer, if he pleases, to await the arrival of a guest. I often performed this duty of hospitality, waited long enough to milk a whole herd of cows, but did not see the man approaching from the town. End of chapter 14